ਵਾਹਿਗੁਰੂ ਜੀ ਕਾ ਖਾਲਸਾ ਵਾਹਿਗੁਰੂ ਜੀ ਕੀ ਫਤਿਹ ਵਾਹਿਗੁਰੂ ਜੀ ਕਾ ਖਾਲਸਾ ਵਾਹਿਗੁਰੂ ਜੀ ਕੀ ਫਤਿਹ ਜੀ ਫਤਿਹ ਜੀ ਫਤਿਹ ਸੋ ਵਾਂਸ ਮੋਰ ਵੀ ਗੈਦਰ ਅਗੇਨ ਇਨ ਥਿਸ ਟਾਈਮ ਵੀ ਵਿਲ ਬੀ ਡਿਸਕਸਿੰਗ ਕੁਆਇਟ ਅ ਇਟਸ ਕੁਆਇਟ ਅ ਆਈ ਗੈਸ ਨੇਵਰ ਐਂਡਿੰਗ ਸੋਰਟ ਆਫ ਅ ਟੌਪਿਕ ਗਿਵਨ ਥੈਟ ਇਟਸ ਬਾਉਂਡ ਟੂ ਕਮ ਅਪ ਏਵਰੀ ਟਾਈਮ ਯੂ ਯੂ نو have seeks living anywhere i guess and there is a key and shastras is it a right or a responsibility and how do we correlate it with the state's functioning you know what well, how a state sees a right and a responsibility and avjit i guess this is a question which is hampering quite a lot of seeks worldwide today sikhi and shastras what are we to do we can't ideologically say that we can be without the kirpan but neither can we deny that the state does have a right to mandate and regulate the use of weapons well wherever we go outside india to any foreign country we have mm. to follow the law and uh, in case of religious freedom uh carrying of qurban is allowed in many countries mm-hmm. uh, but but you you cannot claim that uh, our, our gurus told us to get armed and something and that that shall be followed by those states too that, that's not going to happen No, I guess not. And now when we look at it in the 21st century practically speaking, the term sovereignty now this term sovereign sovereignty is pretty crucial whenever a uh, Sikhi's um, armed nature is brought up. There's bound to be that one intellectual who's going to say sovereign instead of the whole room, you know, going to fl- inflame passions, ignite excitement. We are sovereign, we are sovereign, but When we look at sovereignty Sardar Kapoor Singh the Sikh intellectual defined it as such the sovereignty of a state is actually invested in an individual by god or by providence or you know whatever power you want to believe in the individual is the fount of all civic power which the individual bequeaths to the state on the grounds that the state regulate violence and armed response to protect and safeguard life limb and property Now if the individual truly is sovereign and sovereignty of a state is actually uh, emanating from an individual then the individual and the state coexist so the armed individual essentially is assisting the state in regulating its duties that is protecting citizens from uh, unnecessary violence while at the same time ensuring that the state performs optimally now on that basis this is what sardar kapoor singh never mentioned but what i can understand is that then that individual must also exercise the same caution which is expected of a state when dealing with the armed response or when dealing out an armed response well uh, that that solely depends on the level of trust the state has for its citizens and yep. in, in and india we unfortunately lost that that trust a few decades ago Yes, I guess there is an issue for history, but on the grounds now what we are seeing is that even overseas, I mean, what we are seeing is the unregulated use of Kirpan by Sikhs. And by unregulated, what I mean is that the community seems to be saying that anyone can come and take Amrit, get initiated into, into the Khalsa and get the five Kakars, out of which the Kirpan is primarily a weapon. And, you know, legalized, you can say it's for religious purposes or whatever. It is a weapon because it's very intentioned. the intention behind making it is that of a weapon now the Correct. community should actually be working alongside the state you know the community should say well look you know civic power is 
uh, inherent in you know the citizen, the subject. That's what we believe, and we want to work alongside the state that we will personally regulate the you know whoever is issued a kirpan by the sangat. But, well, I mean, I guess now we have to say that the kirpan is issued by the sangat, and the panjapiar is you know those men and women should actually also be officiated as some sort of a legal authority in local sangats who can deal with issues as they arise and they should have a record of who's actually got a kirpan or who's got shastras at house and whether they're being used responsibly because i mean if you were to use the kirpan in an unprovoked fashion for not self-defense measures then if the state has the has full license to take your kirpan off you you must remember at the same time the sangat should also have that same right because one of the foundations of Sikhi is never to use the kirpan or any weapon in anger in an unprovoked fashion. Well, uh, this is awfully close to a state within a state. So uh, any reasonable government will never, never, ever share power with a, a group of people who are alien or foreign and they want to use religious freedom to take away power from the state and have someone in their own hands. So that's, uh, that's, that's not going to happen. So that's a statement from my side. <laughs> yeah, I was actually imagining it on the grounds that, you know, if there is a liberal state, then the responsibility be this, that, okay, look, now, look, we know what happened in the USA recently. What I read was that it was unprovoked attack. And from my understanding, if the system were ours, what I emphasize was existing, then, you know, the Kirpan, it could be said that this individual has violated that uh, tenet of the Sikh faith because the police are saying based on CCTV evidence that it is unprovoked attack. Now, I wasn't there. I didn't see anything. But from the videos, the police reports and everything else, which I've been watching on talk shows from North America and Canada, even the interview with the person who actually accosted him and then finally disarmed him, it seems to be an unprovoked attack. Now, of course, there are people in the community shouting that this is violating, you know, the religious rights of a Sikh if you take the kirpan off that individual. Well, I mean, the police weren't going to allow a kirpan into jail, were they? Of course not. Of course not. And now, if these people are saying that, look, the police are violating the right, well, the police are carrying out the functions of, you know, the state which empowers them. And very easily, people can turn around and say on that point, well, if you don't like it, go back to your country. And then we are crying racism. Yep, we agree to act like a baby and whine if we don't get our, our own way. And but, also, um, uh, yeah. uh, 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 there is a, a separate point here which actually relates to what we just discussed. Yes. So it was an unprovoked attack, yeah? Yes. But... If you want to join the army, there's a very, very strict test. Yes, yes. So it's a system which alters you. Yeah, so you have your physical test. You know, they will make you run. They will make you climb obstacles, climb a rope, swimming test. There's a medical test. There's a, a mental health test, everything. Yep. Same, same with the police. If you have to uh, apply for a job, they do a background check, yeah? Yes, they do, they do. But, but if you were to... If you were to become a baptized Sikh, there's absolutely nothing. You say, okay, come in here. We'll give you the five cards. Come in here. You, you are a Sikh now. You're baptized. That's it. No background research. No test whatsoever. And you are handing somebody a weapon. 
in Patiala University, the Punjabi University, Patiala, the historical department, they have a very controversial Arhatnama, and this Arhatnama was intended for Sahajataris or non Amritaris by Guru Gobind Singh Ji. Now, what it actually said, it laid down a framework saying, well, look, if you're a Sahajatari Sikh, you need to be an Amritari or your children need to be an Amritari at one point in your life. Mm-hmm. You know, that Amritari, once your Amritari initiated, it obviously continues for the rest of your life. Now, if you were like that, then you would be given a weapon if you were an Amritari after rigorous training. We don't seem to have that uh, military regimen, you know, to train our people who are becoming baptized. And I mean, you must have uh, heard it said back in the day, why? Because people were actually judged and then their mindset was altered to make them more responsible because being Shastratari is a Jumevari and if they had that responsibility, they were only ever given Amrit if they actually proved that they were able to take on that responsibility. Well, unfortunately, this practice has totally disappeared. Now, my grandfather came from Pakistan in 1947. He was around 11 or 15 years old, and he was telling me that back in our day, the entire local Sangat empowered five Sikhs to do to lead an inquiry into any Abilaki wanting Amrit, and only when the five Sikhs were satisfied and they had shown evidence of their satisfaction to another authority, only then did they actually allow someone to partake of Amrit, because fundamentally speaking, the kirpan is a weapon. We can't have it like the namtaris, you know, a little blunt symbol on a kanga, etched onto a kanga. Or, you know, even if it's, I mean, even if you carry a blunt kirpan, there's still quite a lot of danger down there because it is a weapon, even if it might be a blunt weapon. So fundamentally speaking, we as a community have failed to preserve the system which our gurus had given us to uh, regulate the usage of weapons. Now, here's a question which was raised a few years back after incident with the Kirpan had broken out again. If there was a Sikh Republic or a Sikh state, how would they regulate abuse of the Kirpan? I'll guarantee you that they will not give you the right to own weapons like in America. I'll guarantee you that. Because there is no sense of responsibility. And uh, we're not just talking about Kirpan, other weapons Mm. too. Yeah, yep, that's, that's the thing. And Let's another, uh, yes. sorry. Yep. Let's okay. say what, what yes. they tried to do in 1984 succeeded. Or let's say we had this, we established our own state in 1947, let's say. Yes. Would we have a right to bear arms like the Second Amendment of the American Constitution? I don't think so. No. I think one thing you need to actually look at is that when the American Constitution was made, they they actually admitted that the state could overstep its limits and then an armed response was necessary when the state started claiming the loyalty of uh, the hearts and minds of its citizens, when the state become, became totalitarian. I guess that's what I'm trying to say here. But in Sikhi down here, what we have a problem as Sikhs is we don't actually believe this world to be real. That's not a Sikh philosophy, but still we have accepted it. And then on the other hand, another issue is we believe all weapons to be divine. Now, we claim weapons to be divine, but it seems there's no parameters to this divinity because the other side always argues, well, our weapons are divine as well, if your weapons are divine. And then it becomes a shouting match. So when you essentially take it into the realm of mysticism, it really becomes that there is no impersonal law to regulate the use of arms. 
So I don't think if given such vague parameters that any Sikh state or Sikh leader or Sikh president would have allowed the unfettered retainment of arms. Uh, I'll give you an example. Yep. Uh, my father's classmate, uh, and oh, you could call it a friend because if, if the classmate from the same village, you yes. kind of spend a lot, lot of time together in the school and then in the village playing together and doing stuff together. So it's a good friend, yeah? Yes, yes. He actually uh, joined the uh, militancy movement in the 80s. Okay, yep. And, uh, well, of course, uh, they gave him a Kalashnikov and everything. Yes. And uh, he used to drink. Yep. He used to keep uh, some lady company. <laughs> yep. And he, he executed the guarantee of our own village. Yep, because he uh, became the judge, jury, and, and the executioner, and he decided that he was a police informant because back in the seventies, when nothing else had started, he, he married a girl whose father was a policeman. Okay, yep. So essentially, we are saying there is an individual who's only looking out for himself, and he's, uh, for a better want of expression, imposing himself on others through weapons. Yes, and. If, if you look at it from a different point of view, that unfortunately a lot of people still do, he was fighting for an independent Sikh state. He was a very good fella. He was an Amritari and uh, he was a, uh, 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 okay, speaking in Punjabi. Yep. Okay, yep. And I will just translate that for the listeners, for the non Sikh listeners, or well, I guess non English speaking Sikh listeners. He was uh, carrying out tasks for uh, carrying out tasks and duties according to Khalsa tradition. And these duties include killing people who were involved in anti-Khalsa activities. Yes, but the fact we need to remember here is that who defined those activities? Was there any authority chosen by the people at the time? You know, I mean, if you look at it... No, it's, it's very simple. You just had to point your AK-47 and pull the trigger. Because yep. weapons are divine, so the, the God decides. Mm-hmm. And I guess, that, speaking that, fundamentally, that, that, that was something the Guru is opposed, that you can't say God decides this just because you want to do it. Well, the divinity of weapons, it's, please excuse my language, is absolute bullshit. Mm-hmm. Now, a, a weapon is just a tool, like a screwdriver or a plier or a hammer, it's just a tool. I have myself used weapons for hunting and target shooting. Yep. They're just a tool. I felt no more powerful than I usually do mm. when I was holding an AR-15 style weapon in my hand. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. There's, and... there's no, no divinity. It's just a tool. That's it. Mm. And I guess if you look at the parameters established by the gurus for their military, Guru Hargo, Guru Arjan Dev Ji, Guru Hargobind Sahib Ji, Guru Harai Ji, Guru Teg Bahadur Ji, Guru Gobind Singh Ji, they would surely have enunciated to their soldiers or would-be soldiers that, you know, you can't strike someone in anger. You need to let go of your sense of ego, your sense of individuation. Now, Ang 86 on in Shri Guru Granth Sahib has a very... Uh, very clear Shabad, Nanak, only their brave warriors who slay their vicious egos from within. 
that would surely have been uh, stringently emphasized by them that, you know, slay your ego, slay your, slay your sense of uh, I-ness. So you're fighting for a higher cause, but while fighting for the higher cause, you're restraining yourself, you know. You can't use your weapons arbitrarily and then just try saying, oh, well, you know, these are divine. God actually empowered me by giving me a weapon in the first place. Isn't that what ISIS believed? <laughs> well, well, I guess every terrorist group, every fundamentalist group in the world has actually believed that, that their weapons are divine because uh, they lend them a sense of victory during their causes. Yeah. But then the, here the, comes uh, the... Yes. Their cause is divine. And they are mm. using weapons to achieve that cause. So that makes weapons uh, divine. Now, here's something which you need to consider. Like, I mean, if you look at the... Let, let's just look at the past 10, 20 years and the, the global war on terror. We can't miss that. Early 21st century, still ongoing, probably will be ongoing for a long time yet. Now, if you look at it, if an AK-47 in the hands of a rustic villager is divine... What about the uh, wirelessly unpiloted drone, which can pretty much be controlled from thousands of kilometers away from another country and take out more than just one village, take out a whole city with one hit? Isn't that divine? Well, you could be eating pizza and uh, drinking your favorite drink, you're sitting 10,000 miles away somewhere comfortable in, in America, and you could be shooting people down in Yemen. Mm -hmm. And I guess the biggest weapon which God gave us which I guess Waheguru Creator or Providence gave us, the Kweefed us, is the human brain. And you can see this in Gurbani as well on Angu 10.22. Lift up the sword of wisdom and battle with your base mind. Now, this sword of wisdom is referred to as Gyan Karg. Yep. The sword of knowledge, the sword of wisdom. Yep. The sword of wisdom. And on Ang 5.74, Satguru has handed me Gyan Karg and through it I've slain the fear of death. So once your ego is gone, your and I guess ego and Sikhi is individuation, pretty much the sense of I-ness, which is uh, articulated by the five vices, Kam, Krod, Lob, Kar. Once those are gone, your fear of death departs as well, and you live for a cause. Such a person is justified in resorting to weapons because they have that sense of restraint. Another individual won't have that sense of restraint. And I guess the gurus had a preliminary censure or a I guess a way of saying a school of training in which people achieve that sense of egolessness if you can understand that term and only then they were green lighted to partake of Amrit well you have to look at the army training today they don't readily hand you a firearm hmm. they, they, first of all their intention is to break you what you were as an individual before joining the army. Mm -hmm. Then they, they drill discipline into you. Then they drill the viewpoint of the army into you. Now, they, they teach you through slogans, through the demeanor, and through the duties and exercises. And then they send you to weapon training. And then they give you a, a very old-style rifle just to check out how you shoot. And then after rigorous training, after Maybe after uh, six months or even more, maybe even a year, then they give you a weapon. And I guess this is one of the many elements which unites the army. You know, a soldier will leave the army, but he will still share that same sense of purpose which current serving soldiers retain while serving in the armed forces. Now, you see, 
in Sikhi, we don't have that, uh, you know, sense of training, as you said. Now, Guru Nanak Dev Ji and Japji Sahib enunciate that there are five spheres of, you know, human mental evolution. You have Taram kind of where you learn about, you know, right and wrong. Now, this can be said to be the recruiting center. You come to Gyan Khanda, which is the training center. Then you come to Saramkanda. Now, Saramkanda is essentially important because this is where your uh, mental makeup is altered. Like you were saying that the army actually changes your psychology. And then you move into Karamkanda, the active uh, frontline, I guess, the role of duty where you're proactively serving creation. But in Sikhi, we seem to have adopted this uh, myth that the ultimate truth is not static. It has multiple expressions. And this has allowed us pretty much to hide away those elements of our faith, which we believe are too rigorous for us to follow. Mm. Wow. And I mean, if the truth is static, then we will be serving that truth, you know, in the way the gurus wanted us to. But what we have done now is just dismantled that thought process to the degree that, you know, every Tom, Dick and Harry can walk in, take Amrit, have a kirpan. Do something bad, come back, take Amrit, go away. There's no sense of responsibility left. None. And that's a very sad situation. That's a very sorry situation to be in. And I guess if you look at Guru Gobind Singh Ji, when he armed Bandha Singh Bahadur, or even when he armed any of the Sikhs at Anandapur, when he armed women, when he armed men, there was surely that sense of responsibility and that sense of uh, retrospection that, you know, I'm arming this person. Have I ensured that this person is worthy enough to be armed? You know, you know, there is uh, an age-old discussion point. Do do yep. rights come first, or do responsibilities come first? Well, I mean, from a Sikh perspective, I would say responsibility comes first. Well, yeah, that's the truth. And uh, if you're not a responsible person to begin with, why would anybody give you a power to hold a weapon? And this is where it becomes privilege uh, privilege versus prerogative. If someone gives you a privilege, we, we have to actually accept this as it is. In foreign countries, when we're armed, it's a privilege. It's not a prerogative. But if we abuse this privilege, we need to try regaining the privilege and not argue that it was a prerogative in the first place. Well, it is indeed a privilege because uh, I would say that we chose to move move to those countries. Well, we, mm, we have mm. to follow the local law. So you, you can lobby or you can campaign to get some get some more rights. That's the that's mm. the legal way to do it. But mm -hmm. we cannot bully foreign governments and foreign cultures into accepting our way of life. And as, mm. as you said earlier, they will simply end the conversation and say, if you don't like it, go back. We didn't invite you. And now, in Italy, you can't carry a knife. No one can carry a knife by public law, uh, uh, by their laws in a public space. Now, of course, for years, Sikhs have been lobbying the government to allow them to carry arms. And then the Italian government actually came up with a scheme. Well, hey, we will create a type of kirpan for you, which we find acceptable. But then the community did not accept it, obviously, given that this was a bit of a state imposition on Sikh uh, traditions. But I guess you need to remember a lot of things here that this has to be done quite carefully and very pacifically, I guess, in a sense that you need to scrutinize the minute details of everything which can go wrong 
because they would want to know what you will do if something goes wrong before granting you that right. Yep. They would want to see your sense of responsibility as an assembly of citizens that what will you do if this is your tradition, your culture, your faith, your belief, your principle, what will you do if it is abused by one of your own? And that answer is never forthcoming, is it? Not now, no. Okay. Let's assume there, there are 100,000 Sikhs in Italy. I don't know the numbers. Let's just assume for, for the sake of argument. And let's yes. say out of 100,000, 10,000 want to, to be baptized. And they want to carry the fun. Yep. Out yep. of those 10,000, it will take just one individual, just one individual to make a mistake, and they will take away your privilege for all the remaining 9,999. That's the thing. And somehow the community needs to find or discover ways to sit down. And I guess this is where we need to actually say the lack of unity which we have in our communities today is never going to allow this to happen. A new sense of thinking, a sense of revolutionary uh, stepping forward, progression, that sort of thing needs to come in from the Sikh youth. And then, you know, the community, community can sit down as a united front and say, look, it's... I will say something which people might consider offensive... I'm Amrit Dari myself, but taking Amrit does not make you perfect, does it? No. It's how you follow your head and how you're dedicated to Gurbani. The real Amrit is Gyan Amrit. The physical Amrit symbolizes your following that Gyan Amrit for the good of everyone, not just yourself. Now, the community needs to sit down and accept this fact that, look, there are black sheep who are Amrit Dari. They will carry weapons. If so, When something goes wrong, not if, when something goes wrong, what are we going to do about it? Are we going to help the police? How are we going to help the police? Will we have a register of people who are armed with kirpans? Uh, will we have some sort of a penalty? Like Because, I mean, this is where people say, well, look, you can't take away an Amritari's kirpan. But if that Amritari unprovokedly attacks someone, isn't that also against our head, Mariada? Well, it's not because it's self-defense. They always... Do it this way because uh, we were just talking about the what recently happened in the in the USA, yeah. Yes. So the police case, I've just seen a screenshot of the uh, what the police has uploaded on on their own internet website. It simply says yes. attempted murder. Yes. Yes. So it, there is no mention of a self defense case or anything like that. And um, and I would like to add. In I'll just add in one point. The police actually came and saw the CCTV footage, collected the evidence before announcing its attempted murder. Well, of, of course, that's the way you do it. They can't simply guess it's an attempted murder. They, they need to have solid basis to say it's an attempted murder. Yes. Okay, and now that individual versus individual case was turned into somebody removing the turban of a Sikh and Karpan. So it's now the case of a the police versus the com, and, and now we need a fundraiser. <laughs> yeah. And fortunately, that that GoFundMe fundraiser was shut down after a lot of people complained. Yes, and I guess that uh, fundraiser, that from a particular perspective, I guess was something which even the police would have found quite. Uh, I guess when I saw the fundraiser, the language used to describe why it was being used was quite provocative, wasn't it? It was indeed, and that's why I think there might be the reason it was shut down so quickly. 
Yes. So I guess one thing which needs to be remembered is that, you know, as a weapon, and this is for everyone out there, it entails a sense of responsibility if you're carrying it. If you see someone else abuse it, you cannot just step forward to defend them without knowing the full picture. I mean, hey, if someone uses it for self-defense, yeah, it's allowed. If not, then yes, there will be repercussions for more than one person. And it's the same with gun owners. Uh, one massacre with a gun, all gun owners face the heat. Well, not even a massacre. If, if, if I make a mistake of leaving a single bullet, single live cartridge in, in, my, in my car or whatever, outside the shooting range, mm. they will simply arrest me and take my license away. That's the thing. And this is something the community needs to realize, that if you want to settle abroad or even in India, you need to work along with the, the state. Because, I mean, one thing which is very, uh, I guess, quite, you can say, mournful, quite sad about our community is the mentality that we are going to suppress the state. Well, no, essentially in Sikhi, the state, and I guess principally Sikhi should coexist. If the state deviates, then Sikhi should attempt to correct the state, but never impose a theocracy upon it. And to that end, if a citizen is armed, then the citizen needs to remember it's a balancing act. If a Sikh is armed, he needs to remember it's a balancing act. If the state is allowing you a prerogative, or not a prerogative, I'm sorry for that, a privilege, then you also need to work to ensure that privilege is prolonged for as long as possible, and it's not abused by yourself or the community you're representing. That is, and and uh, if, if, if you see somebody with the rights Khalsa written uh, like a tattoo or maybe a, a sticker on the cars. Yes. If possible, ask them, who are you going to rule on to? Who are going to be a subject? Mm. I guess we really need to start redefining Raj in this sense. Yeah, yeah. But what's, what's understood today by normal Sikhs or so-called normal Sikhs is just we are going to be theocratic society where Sikhs will rule and uh, who will the rule over? Could be non-Sikhs, could be Hindus, could be anybody. Mm -hmm. So it's it's just the lust for power, I would say, as per today. I guess the thing down here with Raj is that, you know, we have to say that, you know, sovereignty is actually conferred by a subject onto the state. So the subject is already a sovereign. It's a matter of correcting the state. Now, if you look at during Maharaja Ranjit Singh's empire, Akali Pula Singh tried correcting him as he saw fit. Well, uh, uh, that's a, a topic for another debate because I believe Akali yeah. Pula Singh did what, what he was told by Ranjit Singh. Yeah, to a certain degree, but as I was saying, he tried correcting the state. And on that issue, you need to remember that Raj, we, we are still stuck in the 18th century notion of Raj that we're going to go out and smash the shit out of someone with their swords. <laughs> No, no, no. Now we need to be quite different. The world's changed and some people will never understand that. And I'm not saying that no one's allowed to keep any weapons in their houses. Hell, I have weapons in my house as well. I'm sure you do as well. But it's, you know, no back in the day, you had invasions, you know, and then you needed to be armed. But now you need to exercise quite a lot of caution and jurisprudence before using them. Well, well if there's an invasion today, it's a duty of the state to protect me. Yep, and if you want to aid the state, you can use your weapons, but if you're fighting as a lone ranger, unless your state is overrun territorially, 
I don't think even the state you're fighting for is going to allow you to u- utilize weapons to, in such an effect. No chance whatsoever. Let's say today Pakistan invades Punjab and I'm living in Punjab, yeah? Yes. And uh, <clears throat> let's say I have uh, a rifle in my hand. Yes. What can I do? Okay. Let's say in my book, there are yes. 10 people with yep. rifles and we... Let's say we all have modern rifles with 30-turn magazines and optic sights and whatever, everything, yeah? Yep. Can we fight back? No. No chance whatsoever. No. No. Even, even if, if the Indian state allowed semi-automatic weapons like it, like it used to before 1956-59, I think. No. Yes. There isn't much we can do. Well, I mean, that really comes down to how organized you are and everything. But at the end of the day, only if the state, when Punjab is invaded, we know it was done in the 60s and the 70s by the Pakistani army and, you know, Sikhs fought back as a united whole. They were allowed weapons and so forth. But at the same time, there was, I guess, permission from the state, if you look at it as well. Well, in the case of emergency, there might have been, but uh, I think this remained in our mentalities for for. Uh more than two centuries that uh, we, we are still sovereign and uh, we still have to have our own state uh, in, in the sense that uh, it's going to be a theoretical state. And what happened in, in the 80s and late, late 70s was a direct result of mm-hmm. people refusing and, to understand that times have changed and mm-hmm. it's not the 1700s anymore. This is not to say that individual self-defense is not allowed. No, no, no. Individual self-defense is allowed. And I guess there is a propensity to, for the people who say, you know, that weapons must be allowed and Sikhi and war must be fought for war's sake. They will say that, well, you guys are arguing against self-defense. No, we're not arguing against self-defense here. We're just saying that we need to regularize our usage of weapons so we can later justify, you know, in front of the law that we have actually used this well rather than have the law interfere with the community. Well, self-defense is, is a basic human right. So uh, let me just say that. Well, yeah. So, but uh, the point changes or the meaning changes when you say I need a weapon for self-defense and then you are the person who goes on the offense. Mm, 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 mm. So, so uh, uh, in, uh, in New Zealand, at 16, you could have a firearms license, but there's no clause for self-defense. Absolutely none. No. Maybe, maybe no. in the worst case scenario, if, you, if your house or wherever you live gets invaded by a gang or something yes. and they are shooting, shooting at you. Maybe in the worst case scenario, that's never going to happen. But there's no clause mm. in the law that says that I need to have weapons for self-defense. In America, yes. In India, yes. Well, the weapons we... we <laughs> We get here legally, well, <laughs> yeah. you, you cannot shoot through a cardboard box with that those weapons, with those bullets. Yep. So they're kind of useless. So, okay. So, so uh, in this case, all the civilized countries of the world, except the USA, do not allow weapons for self-defense. Maybe some Eastern European countries do. I know, I know Czech Republic does, but that's that's yep. an increasingly rare thing to have to say that the individual needs, let's say, handguns for self-defense. Carrying knives, I'm not, I'm not too informed about that, but 
here raises yep. another question hmm. for how long into the future are are you going to emphasize the qurban let's say in 100 years people everybody is going to have a laser weapon maybe yep. 200 years are you still going to cry about the qurban Well I guess from my perspective it comes down to this we are saying a qurban should solely be used for offensive you know activities or defensive activities but you know even if it's a defensive move to protect yourself you will launch a offensive counterattack now essentially a knife has many practical uses on the field of combat and otherwise in life but it really comes down to someone asking that if you're stuck in a jungle you're snared in a rope you don't have your laser gun Are you going to use your kirpan to cut away the snare and save yourself or someone else or are you just going to say nope I can't use it for this purpose I need something else I'll sit down and die end of story well every so every single soldier soldier carries, carries a knife so for the same reason for opening your tin cans for opening your meals or probably cutting some rope probably stabbing somebody when you you want to make sure there's no noise fighting with the enemy and you're in combat yep I guess for survival issues and I guess we we have actually constrained the kirpan to a few uses and I'm not saying we cut our vegetables with it or something like that no it's a weapon we need to respect it as a weapon but seriously when people say oh if I draw it out of my uh, sheath I need to cut myself with it or you know blood needs to come out <laughs> you seriously need to think that if Guru Gobind Singh ji was here today he would be wondering well hey wait a second I used to sharpen it I never said that So and you see people today sharpen it oil it up and then cut themselves with it. Well, unfortunately there's no shortage of morons in our community. <laughs> yep, it oh, seems yeah, we okay. have received the massive end of it. Okay. Uh, uh I'll, I'll tell you something very very interesting. And and yep. uh, you your point about people cutting, cutting themselves after sharpening a weapon and that reminds me of that. Yeah. Uh this yep. year March first week I went to Holla Mahalla yeah. Not for that. Okay. So I saw young foreign yes. nehans. None yes. of them older than 25 or maybe mid 20s. Because yep. they they hadn't developed their beards yet. Yep. They were carrying crossbows with scopes on them. <laughs> yep. Carrying spears, carrying swords. And I think one of yep. them did did have a firearm on him. Yep. And uh even those little knives the two inches knives and the damala and everything. So yep. so called heavily armed going to not for self thinking that we are the sons of the guru and we are under his hukum of uh, being armed and everything. Mm, 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 uh, okay so I was thinking okay have you ever ever used your crossbow or is it just a hobby? Mm-hmm. I look at them and uh I actually feel feel sad and, and at this point might be very offensive to some people. You, you could mm-hmm. go to them and te- hold them by the shoulder and tell them wake up it's the 21st century this attire you are wearing belongs to the 1780s. If if Gurgobindo was today came back today or if he existed today would he wear those kind of clothes or would we would, would we have a modern military uniform i guess one thing we also need to remember down here that if you are wearing a historical dress sort of if it's connected with a religiosity then you need to give the right reasons for wearing it that i'm advertising that i'm you know religiously perfect as my forebears 
But if you think that dress is about to get you to heaven, then well, hey, you're pretty delusional. Well, the the, the biggest delusion is using sarvalo. Mm-hmm. You you're using iron and your well iron in that form, and you're refusing to use other technologies, and yet there is an iPhone in your pocket. <laughs> I guess, like I mean, personally speaking, I carry quite a I carry something which looks like a kirpan, but it's from a different uh, tradition altogether, and it's a multi-purpose knife, quite sharp. But I can never sharpen a sarblo kirpan to that extent. It's just impossible. Well, well. Uh... I have somebody in my family who only eats in servalo utensils. Mm-hmm. And, uh, well, I, I used to respect him as a kid, but now that uh, I have traveled overseas, man, lived overseas for many years in, in many countries, you kind of develop a different different viewpoint. And mm-hmm. he, he would come home and simply, uh, well, I haven't asked him, but uh, asked the question to myself, why are you doing this? Why is he doing this? Use steel, it's much better. Mm-hmm. Mm. But no, somehow no. It's just yeah. Some, it's, 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 it's a yeah. mentality that just won't go away. I guess one thing you need to remember is that uh, when they have uh, well, I guess when people believe stuff like that, you know, like Sarblo Bebek and all that, when Mother Gujri and the Saibzadas were separated from you know Guru Gobind Singh Ji, or when you know Guru Maharaj was at uh, the uh, two Khan brothers' stables and they had hidden him. He ate from their hands. Mother Gujarkar ate from Gangu's hands. You know, we, we have these little incidents in history. Ratan Singh Pangu says that, you know, Guru Gobind Singh Ji uh, chatkar a goat down there at Gani Khan and Nabi Khan's house and uh, consumed goat down there as well, the meat of that goat. Now, <clears throat> interestingly enough, would they have had those utensils with them? Would they have been carrying those utensils after ditching, after the Guru ditched all his barrel field? Uh, oh, on the field of battle after he ditched all the necessary accoutrements he had to get faster? Or would Mata Gujarkar have had some sarblo bata with her when she was at, you know, Gangu's spent Okay, okay. Let's assume that uh, they did. Let's assume they did. Yep. Can you cook a goat in a sarblo bowl? No, I've never actually heard of that, nor have I actually seen it being done. No. Guru Gobind Singh wouldn't be carrying a, a 10 litre sarblo utensil or a 20 litre in, in which you can uh, you know, cook, cook a goat. No. You need mm-hmm. to have a big bag or a big utensil to cook a goat in. <laughs> so at, at yep. the most, they might be carrying a bowl to drink water or, or maybe cook something in. At, at the most, let's just assume they did. But yep. if they stayed at Gangu's place, Gangu must have cooked in his own utensils. Yep, and that's the thing. That's the thing down here. We need to consider the fact that spirituality is an inner matter. Our principles, our beliefs, it can't be passed on genetically or through, you know, cooking utensils like people claim it to be. And if you look at another particular argument that, you know, you, you need someone who's equally confirmist and rahat to cook your food and feed you, well, I mean, if it's all a matter of internal discipline, internal regimen, then how is it that you can pass that on to someone else? And quite, quite a critical question, I guess, but it's a question which is never answered because it's shrouded in mysticism. And like you said yesterday, there is a limit to everything. Guru Gobind Singh Jin Zafar Nama says that, you know, when enough is enough, it is right here to draw the sword. 
Now, that restraint, that limit is never restrained when we are coming onto violence or when we are doing anything else, like, you know, the sub law, that we need to be able to justify ourselves and our actions, but we are never able to because we don't actually uh, stay within a limit of uh, hookum, of believability, I guess. Well, Sikhi has always been about practicality, and uh, nobody can deny that, mm. yeah? No, no, no one can deny that. So our gurus took practical and pragmatic decisions throughout their lives. So, mm -hmm. so what's the practical thing to do today? You will ask, no? You, you won't get an answer. No, you won't. And it's just trying to impose the past again. Now, on Anga 433 of Gurbani, Guru Nanak Dev Ji has a very specific Shabbat that all I receive in my life is what I have initially sowed. What I reap, I sow. We know that's in Japji Sahib as well, Apebi Japika. It's also in Anga 433. And then at the end of the day, I do not blame anyone else for the fruits of my own labor. Labor here meaning act, you know, actions. Yep, what I've done. But when you. It. Yep, but when, when you actually have these myths such as weapons are supreme, weapons are divine, or, you know, Vahigru incarnated as Sarblo of Darwin, you know, Gurbani says Vahigru does not incarnate as an avatar that's when you start having a different sense of purpose and that's when problems arise. Uh, uh, I think uh, I recently saw quite a few videos from the farmer protests, yeah? And there yes. were a lot of, lot of Nihangs joining in with the, with the weapons. Yep. And uh, so their, their sole existence today is that we are the sovereign, largely forge of Guru Gobind Singh. And mm. uh, according to his hukum, we are armed. And uh, these, we these weapons are these shield of the Khalsa. Yeah? Mm. yeah. And uh, in case of a police confrontation, they will be the first one to throw their swords and charge at the police. <laughs> and yeah. that might result in a shootout. And then we will blame uh, straight, straight atrocities. And so, classic. But uh, the point I'm trying to make here is that Weapons are carried by the state or the or the state authorities, yep. let's say police or the or the army. And yep. the state also allows you to carry weapons through licensing process. As long as you're responsible with those weapons. Now, yep. if you're openly at war with the state, you're openly at war with the state, your community or the state has misstepped, then yes, there is guerrilla warfare. No one gives a damn about licensing. But if you're actually doing unprovoked attacks and then trying to justify it, you know, then of course the state has full right to go hard on you and even more harder when you claim that it's actually violating your rights because it will say, well, hey, wait a second, we aren't violating anyone else from your community. We aren't violating their rights, but you did this unjustifiably. We need to censor you, get you under control, and now you're trying to instigate other people against us. Well those things happened and we refuse to learn from it. It's, it. it's still some kind of, how do I say, stubborn ego that we are the best in the world. What mm. we do is correct. And it doesn't help when you're feeding a younger generation myths like that we only live for war. You know, of course, reading history is good, but when we read history, we need to remember that the authors have certain prejudices or views and, you know, men like Gyanni Gyan Singh wrote in their Naveen Panth Prakash and other texts that are, the Khalsa only lives for war. The Khalsa does not solely live for war, does it? That's just a misleading stereotype. 
it leads for the betterment of creation alongside its creator. Now, that doesn't solely mean that you do this through force or through war, even though that's been a bigger aspect of Sikh history. The gurus uh, achieved other changes as well without the sword. Well, you have to look at uh, what Bandazik Mahadal did. Mm -hmm. Khalsa is the purest form of statecraft. Mm-hmm. So it's not just weapons because statecraft, well, it, it does uh, does contain self defense or offensive if it needs to, but there are, mm-hmm. there are ten thousand other things. Khalsa is responsible. Khalsa is creative. Khalsa is innovative. Khalsa is educated. Mm-hmm. Khalsa is constructive. We are not just mm-hmm. mad people with who just know how to fight and nothing else. Mm-hmm. We we are a lot more than that, and being armed and being able to fight and being able to defend ourselves is a very small part of what Sikhi is and what Khalsa is. If you look at it from another perspective, historically speaking, you never you never see that Maharaja Ranjit Singh <laughs> achieved any great feats in war, did he? He only had generals doing his fighting, and he tactically controlled them from the back even though he was on the front lines now and then. But if you look at it, after Nuab Kapoor Singh, Jassa Singh Aluwali and the Khalsa missiles, they were fighting among themselves. And this was a time when, you know, texts were being produced saying Sikhs fight for war's sake or for fighting's sake. And then Ranjit Singh comes along, short fella, handicapped in one eye, and pretty much just uses his brain to derail them and just take over in a space of maybe 10 years. Yeah, well, alliances and just just using force and everything. Okay, so, so yep. you, you you make a good point that he just stayed in the hall and uh, just directed his general. Because, please yep. correct me if I'm wrong. Mm. His advisory council was non Yes, to a certain degree. Yes, it was non sikh because if you look at it, he relied on the. Dogra trios too much. But if you look at the military council, the fodder was still Sikhs. Well, of course. Uh, I'm talking about, uh, let's say, early 1800s. So mm. the Dogras came up after 1820s, well, the, well, they gained influence around that time. Mm-hmm. So his advisory, advisory council was non Sikh, and all the capable Sikhs were on the borders fighting. And he never trusted mm. them enough to let them stay near Lahore in case they rebelled. Mm-hmm. People, and people, I guess this is something. Uh, very, yes, oh, sorry. sorry. People get confused by the <laughs> use of the word Sarkar Khalsa for Ranjit Singh. Yep. It, it, it wasn't Khalsa Raj. I, I would dare to say it was just an individual who happened to be born into a Sikh household who founded an empire. It was not Khalsa Raj. There's nothing about Khalsa Raj where you have prostitutes dancing in your palace and you have five marriages and you're, when you're 50, you, you're marrying a, a 17-year-old girl. That's not Khalsa. No. If you look at it, Gyan Jawaharmanik, these, the intelligence is within you. It depends on how you use that intelligence. And only a gap of three to four years separated the American colonies and the missile sardars. You know? But if you look at the Americans... They innovated and they decided, look, republics haven't lasted long. We will make a republic for the first time on American soil. 
even though the Native Americans had had semi-republics before, the Native Indigenous Americans, the ones we misnomer as American Indians today, the, you know, the, I guess the white Americans, and I apologize if that sounds racist, they took leaves out of many books of history to do that. Now, Gurbani says, Gyan Karag, use your intelligence, use wisdom. The Sikh Sardars never had that, even though they had Banda Singh's legacy behind them, the Guru's legacy behind them. They just kept on warring with each other until Ranjit Singh came and established an empire run on personal fiat, then impersonal rule. And once that empire crumbled, fell, look at what it left us with. Nothing but a painful legacy. Not even a legacy because, uh, well, the more you learn about it, the, the more you understand it and uh, the more questions you have, yeah, correct? <clears throat> yes, that's the thing. So, if if Sikhs at that time had the right to keep, keep and bear arms in their own homes, it would have been nearly impossible mm. for the East India Company to conquer us. Yes, that's the thing. But I guess one other thing you need to remember is Dr. Joseph Leitner. He actually commented how, you know, Sikh weapons close to half a million were destroyed and Sikh texts. But essentially, if you look at it, when the missiles conquered Delhi for that short period, Hastings, the viceroy for the company, actually said something to James. Uh, I can't remember that individual's last name, or maybe James was his last name. Basically, this individual, James, met Tassa Singhaluwali and the Sikhs and reported how they had a nascent republic. And when the Sikhs left Delhi, Hastings was laughing about it and saying, well, they seem to be pretty damn big fools because they can fight, they can brawn, but they have no brains. If they had brains, they would have accepted the Mughal emperor's uh, offer of uh, democratizing Delhi. And then from there, their republic would have spread out all over India and they would have been even able to stop the British marching across. Because, you know, easily for the British, it was pretty, pretty easy to topple one ruler and take over a state. But how hard would it have been for them to actually confront a democratic state where every citizen was empowered to choose his own rulers? And that's why the British never ended up conquering Europe. They fell to the ravages of democracy, you can say, in political change. But in the East, it was a very different story for them. Because at the end of the day, the only people who could have stopped them, the Sikhs, they didn't use their wisdom, their intelligence, their innate intelligence as Guru Nanak Dev had wanted them to. Well, uh, you're making a point about, uh, sorry, uh, I forgot, uh, Bagheel Singh, Sadar Bagheel Singh. Yes. In 1783, I believe. Yes. And uh, there are still a remnants of Sikh populations around Delhi, and uh, they're largely Hindu now. And there yes. is a very large uh, community of uh, people of Sikh heritage in Western Uttar Pradesh. <clears throat> so they saw an opportunity, they saw good land that they settled there, yeah? So they, they had yep. the opportunity to become the rulers and they did rule for a few years, but afterwards just became civilians. And uh, we, uh, I, I do yep. fully agree with you that we missed a golden chance. We should, uh, well, at least we should have taken over Delhi uh, the Mughal uh, ruler over there and established a fair and square Kaltaraj over there. We had the opportunity, they just gave it away. We just gave it away, and I guess that brings us back to the fundamental point. Being armed with a weapon, with a kirpan, is a responsibility. It will forever be a responsibility in the eyes of the Guru and the state and anyone else. It should even be a responsibility in your own eyes as well. But 
essentially, you know, we're always going to be armed with a Kirpan in the future, laser guns or not. But at the end of the day, it's a responsibility we can't violate. If we really are at war with any entity, we really need to declare it openly and set parameters for the conflict. But if we are going around unprovokedly causing, you know, conflict, yes, it will rebound and bite back at us. But we are a community, we are a diaspora, we are foreign-based. It will affect other members of the community as well today, tomorrow, and those who are still going to migrate over from India or anywhere else in the world. The greatest weapon you have, the one weapon which made all other weapons, the one weapon which can change and topple governments, lead revolutions, and make sure those revolutions culminate uh, and adhere to the principles they were based on or they are based on is your brain. Your brain is your greatest weapon in Sikhi. And once the full capacity of your brain has been reached, then you should actually go to put on a kirpan because then your acts will speak for themselves. Well, to recap, we okay. there is nothing divine about weapons. No, nothing divine Absolutely at all. Absolutely nothing. Your brain is the greatest weapon ever devised yes. in the history or in the coming times because everything Everything mm, comes from mm. your brain, yeah? Yes. Yeah. And uh, in, in Sikhi, Karpan is just a tool, as, as is every single weapon. As is every other single weapon. It is a it is a, a item with a symbolism attached to it, but fundamentally speaking, it is just a weapon. It's just a tool. And... Uh, Khalsa is much, much more than just a fighting force. Much more than just a fighting force. And I guess you need to see how far-sighted the gurus must have been then rather than saying they'd keep a musket or anything else. They knew knives would always be used, so they gave a kirpan. It's our fault that we're using these without any justification and provoking conflicts and unprovokedly stabbing people. Nonetheless, we need to set up parameters as a community to unite and regulate its usage. So another point we have discussed is that there's a dire need to regulate the usage of Karpan and there's a dire need to, to set some checks as to who gets to take Amrit. Yes, yes. And what Amrit fundamentally is. Yeah, well, yeah, that's a big debate too. Yep. And I guess these are questions for another time. But for now, thank you for joining us. This was quite a productive talk, but because it's such a big issue, you can't cover all the profound points of it. And that is left to people to make their own personal choice on what is right, what is wrong. Again, your brain is your greatest weapon. Use your brain before using a weapon. Exercise due caution. Remember you're representing more than just yourself. If it's self-defense, fine. If it's just one of those fights where you know you can walk away and nothing will happen, walk away. Always make sure you can justify your use of force to yourself, to your conscience, and to the people who will be regulating that force. Thank you very much for joining us. Until next time. Wahe Guruji Kapalsa.